Behind the Shades. Take us through your journey from this rich, rich, beautiful, um, inspiring culture to how you got started doing what it is you're doing with helping your clients overcome overwhelm. There's a, a, a cultural element it's buried in there somewhere, buried in the history of our people because so many of our people came up with colonial mentalities. That's deeply, deeply buried in how we live. And it means that some of us may feel that we are lesser just because we are who we are. Just because we look like we do, just because we have the accent we do, just because we come from the poor people that we do. Um, you may have inherited a mindset that says, you know what, you're meant to play small or you aren't important enough. Others in our society are more important. That actually was my case, even though I did pretty well in school, uh, my parents actually taught me that the way out of poverty and into a better life was education. We've heard that so many times. And so they would push us really hard to do well in school, and we did. I did not realize that that set me up to think that it was only by working hard and it was only by being excellent that I could ever be worthy. So anytime I failed, anytime I messed up, anytime I just wasn't as upstanding and as well put together as I thought I should be or as somebody else thought I should be and they dropped labels on me, I would feel that I had failed them and I wasn't worthy. So, but all of these things were hidden from me until I was in my thirties, actually. I, I just didn't clue into those, those things. I was blind and just in the rat race and working really hard, overextending myself, um, thinking that the way to earn my position in the workplace, the way to earn respect, the way to be accepted by others was always to be an overperformer. And I don't know what ball dropped, but it was around my mid thirties that I finally started realizing something is wrong here, Mash. Uh, you think that you can't just be you and be enough. And that's part of the reason I'm on your interview with no makeup and in a t-shirt, because I've been on this journey for about 10 or 12 years just learning to say, this is how I look. This is how I sound. And I really don't care too much anymore about what somebody else thinks about this look, this face, this voice, because I've learned to accept and love it. And I think when I come from the authentic place of who I am, this center, the right people will hear my message and it will reach them in, in the way that they need, need to be reached. Was it difficult for you to appreciate how far you've come and how much you're willing to change to understand that this is who I am, this is what I'm going to present to the world. I want people to love me the way that I'm loving myself right now. 
there have been many, many journeys, many little and big lessons that led me to that. Um, and I haven't even scratched the surface. That's just the background. But one of them that I remember looking back is there was an adult in my life when I was a little girl who told me that I was ugly. And I was ugly because I had big lips. And a little girl doesn't question anything, right? So this person said, your lips are thick. They don't look pretty. And the instruction I got was to bite my, my lower lip and make it thin. So I was taught how to do this. And because I, this is the one thing I think I never learned. <laughs> so, so I just didn't do it well, but I, it, it was a source of a lot of shaming and a lot of, you know, being, being told negative things because somebody didn't like that my nose was big. And somebody didn't like that my lips were big. And you started to feel like this model that somebody made me from was a flawed model. This mold should have been broken. And that person, my son is 16 now. When my son was around 11, he came home one day and he said that the person had told him the same at age 11. I told him that he was to bite his lower lip and start tuning himself up. And I said, son, I want you to wipe that nonsense straight out of your head because you're beautiful just as you are. See, there are different looks of people everywhere you go. And there isn't one right look or one right race or one right height or one right anything. And I got so angry. I was actually, you know, like scrappy do put him up put him up I wanted to go fight for my son's right to just be himself and not be told that anything about him wasn't shiny um but what I decided to do was just tell him when you hear this I want you to switch it off I want you to just close yourself off because son you are beautiful just as you are and don't listen the other thing that used to irritate the same person was that I would write with my son plays, and the plays were in our local dialect. And our local dialect, this person would tell him, no, 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 standard English only. I speak pretty good standard English. It does not mean that our dialect, has, there's no place for our dialect. We communicate in many ways, and there are many different places that you would use different communication styles, right? If I text you, I don't text you in full, in full sentences with full stops and exclamation marks and inverted commas. So we change the language depending on what we do. And if we want to represent the way our people live, we might speak using dialect and using jargon. For example, I know in the States, some people would say, AX for ask, right? And it's dialect. Now, if you know how to use ask when the time is right for it, but when you talk with your sister or your neighbor in a community setting, you say ask, I have no issue with it. And that I think is what I was teaching him without knowing that, you know, all of the reasons I was teaching it to him. 
I was just teaching him, be proud of your heritage. Be proud of all of us, no matter where we come from, right? And um, 10 years ago, this journey into becoming a coach to help with overwhelm really began for me. Because before that, I was an engineer. And I was doing everything that I should have done to live life the way I thought I should have lived life. 10 years ago, I, I, I had finally leaned in and said, you know what, my heart is the heart of a teacher. I became a lecturer at a university. I left managing engineering and consulting, that sort of thing behind, and I moved into where I thought I was really called to be. Just a few months later, I became pregnant with my daughter. And when she was born, we were surprised to find out that she had four defects in her heart. By the time she was eight months old, those defects had reached a critical state and we needed to do open heart surgery. We had to do it in the States. It could not be fixed in our country because of limited technology and capabilities. So we had to go away for surgery. Unfortunately, after the surgery, while she was recovering in the ICU, somebody pulled a tube out and she bled out. And that led to her becoming flatlining for 20 minutes, becoming severely brain injured and losing all of her senses and her ability to suck and swallow. And so in the blink of an eye, my daughter went from the whole world lies ahead, the world is your oyster kind of thing. We've done surgery and now you're all better. To she was vegetative and there was no hope. That's what we were told. And that was a level of overwhelm I had never experienced or dreamed that I would experience because it wasn't predicted at all. It was a fluke. But all that I can say is there were choices all along. And the choice was I could have a meltdown and I could never function again. Or I could just put one foot in front of another. And most of the people that I've spoken to who have been in similar situations say, you don't have the luxury of melting down when your child is literally um, in need of you to keep her alive. And so you show up. And what that means is that you push all your needs and all your feelings down and you suspend anything that you might need to keep you going because your job is to keep this child going. And my son was five years old. He turned five that month, actually, the month after. So I had a five-year-old that I was pretending to still be happy mommy with and still singing and playing and taking him downstairs and running and pretending that life was the same as the day before. Um, while I had a child that had lost all of, her, all of her senses and they told me, withhold food and let her go. So that's a really crazy place to be where I'm living two realities, one pretend reality just for my son to not have the fallout. 
And one where I think I am just saying, you know what? I don't want to listen to you say that I should put my child in a home or let my child go. And there's no hope for her. So I was fighting that and saying, no, 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 this is maybe this is statistically what you think, but I refuse to believe this. And I'm going to hold hope really, really strong. And I'm going to hold on to faith. So when she was flatlined and we had nothing else holding us up, my husband and I just held hands and we prayed. Because when you're most broken, what else can you do? And it was in that one minute prayer that her heart restarted. The minute I said, could I get back my child? God, give me back my child. The heart started back after 20 minutes. To me, that's a big miracle. What the doctor's hands on her heart could not do. God did after I just said, please give her back to us. But she didn't come back the way we had expected. She, the day before the surgery, she had stood for the first time at age eight months. She came back to us, unable to lift her neck, totally losing all strength and all ability, unable to make a sound. We would see her mouth open and she's screaming and tears are streaming down, but you hear no words. You hear no sounds at all. It's like being in the worst horror movie because you want to hear your child cry. And you're surrounded by other ICUs where children are crying and your child can't cry. And I remember thinking, I would have felt it was torture to not to hear my child cry. And now I'm longing for her to cry because that would have been that she can express herself and say, mom, I'm uncomfortable. Mom, I'm in pain. And, and we didn't have that. It took us about four or five years before she was able to move her index finger one millimeter. And that was a miracle because we were told she'd never move. She was arms outstretched, feet all the way down, soles of feet when she's lying on the, on the mattress. And she's just this little log in her bed. And they said, you know, that's all she'll ever be able to do. Today, she's still bedridden. In March, the 16th of March, she's going to be 11. She has the most beautiful laugh. She, so she, she, her voice came back. She's nonverbal, but she actually makes about three or four sound words that we recognize. Dada being her favorite. Dada is her boy. She prefers him above mommy and above everything else. And that makes me extremely happy because my child can prefer things. She can choose. She says, Alala, which means I love you. And when we leave her alone too long, like you go to wash some, some, some dishes and you're not in her room with her, she goes, hello. <laughs> so I think that's amazing because if you can see one shift, then I think the world of possibilities lies ahead. Maybe slow, but it's not impossible. She has maybe a dozen playlists. She listens to every kind of music that I can think of, from nursery rhymes to we sing. Since she's been five, we've been singing happy birthday to you almost every week. 
Um, we sing Deck the Halls, Christmas music, Nat King Cole, um, All Through the Year. Her favorite, favorite song is All of Me from John Legend. Um, so she has a million playlists because her hearing is really acute. Uh, her ability to understand or receive language is great. She just can't output, and I say yet. And recently she started to track red and yellow when we pass it in front of her, although she's diagnosed as blind. We are read up and we said, you know, we don't think so. We actually think it's something called cortical visual impairment, which isn't diagnosed in our country. So we started to do stuff at home. And then one day she started to track. So slowly, slowly, she's coming back, you know, and I don't know how far she'll go, but if hope dies with us, then hope dies for her. And so our job is to always show up. And our job is also because we're human and sometimes we look at her. Sometimes, actually this weekend, I looked at her and I was crying. I don't cry very often, but I do sometimes. I looked at her and she has two dislocated hips as well due to issues with the hyper tonality that she has, you know, high tone muscles. So it crosses over and it pops the hips out of the sockets. And because of her brain and heart issues, anesthetizing her to do surgery and so on is not an option. So I'm looking at her and I'm thinking this weekend, you know, she's going to be 11. And Life is getting more complex, of course. More and more needs medically, more and more little complications. And I'm looking at her and I'm feeling sad. I'm, I'm wishing. I've heard other parents say, you know, I'm so sad because my special needs child will never get married. And long ago, in the very beginning, I'd say I wish that was my problem, you know. Um, but I, I've learned that it's not about comparison. It's not. I do feel sad that my child can't walk, can't talk, can't, you know, hold something. It's such basic things that I'm longing for for her. And sometimes it can get overwhelming. This has been a decade of learning what overwhelm feels like learning what disempowerment feels like and learning that I can choose to live in this disempowered state. It's always going to be there for me. But if I live in that state every minute of every day, then what's the point of being here? Did you think when you, when you heard the news of your daughter and she had the heart concerns and then you bring it to the hospital and this happens. What was some of the thoughts I was going through your mind when you look back today and say that I went through something where someone made a comment about me. I went through something where someone made a comment about my son. Now I am going through this with my daughter. 
Mm. What were your thoughts when you looked at all three of those situations? Honestly, I've never really put them next to each other and said, all of a sudden, the other two sort of fade out in terms of how hard they are to deal with. I'm like, okay, those two are just what some uneducated or, or uneducable person, I don't know, what somebody in their own darkness said. That's just their judgment. I look now at those things and I realize that I could have let those things break me or keep me stuck or brainwash me into believing it too, right? Because to a large extent, that's what I think racism is. is. I think it's brainwashing. I think it's that somebody told you this and taught you to think like this and you've adopted it. Um, because I grew up being told by some people that I had to feel that way about, about people who didn't look or behave like me in my own country. And I remember really rejecting that. And I think every little child rejects that automatically. We've seen those little reels and so on with children of opposite different races running to each other to hug, hug each other, right? So I don't think it is our natural state. I think it is a learned belief. And I think it is hard to unlearn, but I don't think it's difficult. It, it's impossible to unlearn. I do think that we have to wake ourselves up and say, is there any validity to this? Do I choose to believe this? I teach students now at the university and, and, and I tell them they are our future. And we see racism in our country. And I tell them, you're sitting here looking at me and I've had students tell me because of my race, they're sure that I would treat certain people better than others or I'd mark people better than others. That's for you to decide. But I know that I'm being as fair as I can. And what I want my students to realize is that you're hindering your own self when you put up these roadblocks to our development as a country, as a region, as a world. You know, so calling them on it and telling them, I want you all to notice these things that are happening. And I want you all to decide, is this the world you want for your child? Your childhood doesn't exist yet because you are shaping the world they're going to live in with your attitudes and your behaviors. So I now see the things that were said to me and my son as a gift to me. Because if I'd never been told them and if I'd never felt that feeling of being crushed by somebody else's judgment and being told you're not good enough, in all these ways. I wouldn't have known how debilitating it can be to your spirit and how bitter you can become. Because until I was in my thirties, I carried so much resentment toward that person. Real resentment. Now that person hasn't changed, but I have. 
I no longer need to set a place at my table every day for that person. Because that person is living their life and never remembering me. But every day I'm suffering because I remember their hurt of me. Was it something, Marsha, where you look at the boys, the girls that you help, you look at your students, every time you see their faces and you see them struggling, do you see a little bit of your childhood in them that fuels you to make sure that they have a better time growing up and they don't experience some of the things that you experience, or better yet, they don't have that person that's going to tell them, you need to change your nose, you need to change your eyes, you're not going to be good looking, no one's going to like you. Do you see that in your kids as well? I do, Tarin. When I start my semester, and I introduce myself, when I introduce myself, I introduce myself as, I'm an engineer, teaching you in social sciences. How in heaven's name have I shown up to teach you in a place where I don't belong, right? And I then tell them, here's who I am. I grew up in a little village in front of the forest next to a river. It's really important that I tell my students this. I want them to know that who you have in front of you is a really, really simple country girl with a PhD and an engineering degree, right? I want them to know that they're not going to feel that I'm somewhere up here while they are down here. I'm not ever going to talk down to them. So the next part of the introduction is talking to them about the concept of customers and service the customers, that I actually am the servant and they are the customer. I'm the teacher and the teacher is providing a service to them. They have a duty to show up for class and to do certain things, but I also have a duty and I'm accountable to them to give them good value and service and care, even though they're grown men and women. I do feel that part of my job is to care. And that came out of, I don't think when I was younger, I always felt safe. I don't think when I was younger, I always felt beloved and accepted. And I don't want somebody else to feel that if I have any control over it. So it has shaped a lot of how I have changed the mindset that I choose to have. So I think I'm sitting, you know, with a, with, with, with a set of um, radio buttons and I get to tune myself. I get to decide. I can believe anything on this continuum. Where do I choose to sit in my beliefs? I'm in control of me. But in order to understand that, This is just my journals from about two years now. There's a lot of pain that we push down because we want to appear as if we're stronger and more infallible than we actually are. 
We think that we are weak because we feel pain or because we cry. Not true. The strongest people are the ones who aren't afraid to say, I'm hurt. I've been through some tough stuff, right? But I couldn't say that because I didn't know how I felt. I had never let myself take it out, look at it, understand it, come to terms with it and see what's acceptable in what I'm looking at and what's not. So I just filled up those books with, what do you believe? What have you experienced? What's still breaking you 30 years on? Because you're reliving these traumas. You've never allowed yourself to really look at them and really process them. So how in heaven's name can you move on from them? So I was living in a stuck place for three and a half decades. So Marsha, so when you mentioned that you were kind of looking for this comfort, looking for the love, was there specific places that you wanted it to come from? Or is it more so that you are trying to find it wherever it is that you can find it? This came up for me this week. I don't know where it came from, but it just came up. It was somewhere I must have read that we get stuck at a particular age where our biggest trauma lies. And I asked myself, is that true, Marsh? Did you maybe get stuck and developmentally, emotionally? Did you get stuck and not develop past a certain age? And the answer that came was when I was 11, I was molested by a man on the street. And I ran home to my grandmother's house crying. And uh, an adult met me, a very, very close adult met me at the gate. And it poured out of me, this is what happened. And in the middle of my first sentence to say, I've been hurt, the person told me, shut up. You are not allowed to speak of this. Do not complete that sentence and never tell anybody anything about that again. At age 11, you are likely to obey an adult that you trust, and I did. So I pushed down my hurt, and I began to self-harm. And for two decades, I pulled out my eyelashes, and I bruised myself and cut myself and did lots of things. And only when I got to my 30s was I able to see that those were my cries for help. Those were the ways because I had been told I couldn't talk about it. And I'd been told that the people who I thought should care didn't want to hear. So I found nonverbal ways to say, please, please see me. Please show me you love me. And they didn't. So I was pulling out hair patches from my hair and having big ball patches. And I had no eyelashes at one point. And I still carry these scars, including this scar in the center here from pulling hair out. And I continued to do that way up into my 30s. Didn't know why it had become an obsessive compulsive sort of thing by then, I think. But I felt relief when I did these things because I was purging pain. 
it's only when I started to take those stories out and look at them and say, Marsh, what's the hurt? When did it happen? That I started to realize these are the things that are pinning you to the past. And I don't want to be pinned there. First of all, I want to be a heck of a good mom to these two children that I have. I also want to be a better wife. I have been such a harsh, horrible person to my husband sometimes because I was so hurt and broken. And I learned to be subservient at work, always to, to give, 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 and give more. That's how I got acceptance. And so I accepted a lot of abuse at work. And I'd come home and my husband would know that I was having a hard, hard life at work. And so he'd actually, when I drive into the yard, he would come downstairs and meet me by the car. And he'd say, hi, Marsh. And the minute he said, hi, Marsh, I'd start to cry. And he said, do you want to talk about it? But nobody wants to relive the hell they've been through for the day. So I'd say no. And I'd come upstairs and he'd have a cup of hot cup of tea waiting for me. And that tea equated to love. This is how he loved. And he's there like, Marsh, I'm here for you. This tea, I made it five minutes ago because I knew you're driving now. And here it is, just perfect. And I knew how much he loved me because he has never, 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 even when I was the most horrid to him, he's never said, you know, I can't handle you. I don't want any more time with you, you know, even through it all. But there was a time when he said, you know, Marsh, I, I don't know. I, I can't handle the harsh things you tell me because I was horrible to him in my language. Um, I would find fault with him. And I, it's only now, so the last 10, 15 years that I've really looked and asked myself, why? Why have you been like this? Why were you like this? And it was, I learned to be my worst judge. I learned that if I pull myself apart and tell myself all the bad things, I get to fix it before the people get to judge me and tell me I'm failed. So my inner critic kicked in and said, I'll protect you. I'll be the worst version of them. My inner critic speaks in the voice of the people who have hurt me in the past. I have those voices. And I would hear those voices. I'm not calling the names of people because I don't want to hurt them. Um, arguably, I have the right to, but I don't need to right? But when you become such a harsh judge of yourself, you tend to be a very harsh judge to other people too. Very, very judgmental and, and very unkind because the language you speak to yourself is unkind. And so you become this auditor all the time. You become this judge all the time. You become this, this arbiter of right and wrong. So if he made the, the, the scrambled eggs a little too rubbery, I would feel the need to say, you know, these eggs are too rubbery. You should have cooked them less. 
Why would you do that if somebody has done a favor for you and made you breakfast? But I, I couldn't see that. Now I see it. So I've come a long way. I still have a long way to go, right? I'm not perfect at all, but I'm not the beast I used to be. Because I'm not the beast I used to be to myself, I think. And because I have come to value, I call my husband that boy. So if I say it, I don't mean it in, in any bad way. But I come to really value that I locked out and, and got this husband who we are together 23 years now. We, we are married 23 years now. We have been together for 30 years now, actually. And for somebody to stay with me through thick and thin when I wasn't the kindest person to him tells me that I'm a very, very lucky person and I don't for a second take it for granted. When you were calling out in the different ways for someone to love you, is your husband the person that filled that void for you? He is the very first person I ever told about that abuse at age 11. I never spoke of it until I made friends with him. We were friends for a while. And I actually trusted him enough to tell him and to cry for the first time to him. And he didn't run away and never come back. <laughs> So, it's beautiful that he has been there for you because you went so many years wanting what he is providing to you. And even though there were others in your life that have come and gone and others who were mean to you, as you mentioned, he didn't run. He stayed and he stayed and he stayed. How does that make you feel thinking about that right now? I, I feel gratitude all of the time about this. I reflect a lot about that because if he was going to run, he would have run when my daughter became brain injured and, and vegetative for sure. Most, um, most dads tend to run at that point in special needs um, situations. Um, not all. And I'm so grateful that my, my husband didn't, you know, um, but that it did break him. It did really reduce him to tears and he couldn't function at that point when I had to just stand up and walk. But that's it. When I couldn't, he was there for me. And when he couldn't, finally, I was able to be there for him. And isn't that the best kind of relationship where we don't have to be perfect and we don't always have to pretend to have it all together. What's something that you'd want to tell the next generation who may be experiencing what you have experienced and they're searching for the type of love that you're able to find? What I've learned is that you don't make a list and say, these are the things I want in my ideal guy in my ideal girl. You don't say, well, they need to have McDreamy hair and this kind of voice 
and this kind of personality. And we don't need a laundry list because when you make a laundry list, something very inconsequential on that list might be what makes you put an X and go <clears throat> for Mr. Perfect. It's not those things. I mean, lots of people would look at my husband and would say, he doesn't make my list because whatever. Or look at me and say, she doesn't make my list because, right? But for me, he is Mr. Perfect. And that's because he fit me like a puzzle piece, right? That's because when I was facing trauma, he was able to understand me and hold space for me. And that's what caring is. That's what love is. Um, and all of a sudden, it, it's, it's so much less of a physical thing than a meeting of spirits of sorts. That's what I think. You know, and, and perhaps that's why the term soulmates comes up, right? But I definitely, he asked me once, you know, he thinks he's going to die before me. And I'm like, well, I'm never doing this again. You know, this whole journey of a relationship and a marriage and so on, it, it takes so much trust and so much in, interdependence and so much openness. It's vulnerability defined. And I don't know that I have the ability to be this vulnerable again in this life. It certainly takes a lot of effort. So for a younger person who says, you know, how do I find the right person? The answer that I've found is try to be the right person. And that's what I've said to you. I, I found so many flaws in me. And I knew that I had to start being a better person to him. If I sit him down and I say, listen, these are the five things I can't stand about you. You better fix them. One, two, three, four, five. What's the chances that he's going to change any of them? What's the chances he's even going to listen to my five? You see, if it were me and he were lecturing to me those five, I would switch off the volume button in my mind. I wouldn't listen. I don't need you to lecture me on my inadequacies, right? Nobody's going to be open to that kind of communication. I don't change because you demand that I change. That's not how it works. However, if I see you loving me enough that you raise your whole vibration, you raise the way you show up for me, I'm much more likely to want to be a better version of me for you. That's exactly why I wanted to be a better person, right? Because he was being so genuinely kind and caring always to me. And I finally said, Marsha, why in heck can't you be nicer to him? And then I realized I want to, you know, and I have to because I can't respect myself if I keep taking from him and kicking him while I'm taking from him because that's more or less what I was doing. I'm <laughs> sorry.